Hello and a very warm welcome back to The Gold Podcast. I'm Helena Beer, the editor of Gold, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by my co-host and the assistant editor of Gold, Isabel O'Brien. How are you? I'm very good. I just keep coming back. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's been it's a, what we like. Indeed. Yeah, it's been a good week. Uh, obviously, we published Gold last week and I think it was a real success lots of amazing engagement and yeah just really proud of that one so yeah yes agreed it's a brilliant issue and as you say the engagement has been wonderful so far but as for the podcast we've got a bit of a different episode this week we've hit the midpoint of the season and with the latest edition of gold being published last tuesday we thought it was a perfect time to take a step back from our usual interviews and have a bit of a deep dive into some of the topics we covered Mm, Indeed, there were so many pertinent issues in the pages of gold this time around, our 24th edition, if you didn't know. So today we're going to be having a chat about some of those and what they mean for pharma now and in the future. Yes, really looking forward to it. And Gold's editorial executive, Jade Williams, will be joining us shortly for that conversation. But for now, let's take a very quick look back at the week's news in news you might have missed. So, Isabel, what's been happening in pharma this past week? Well, this past week, the topic on everyone's lips has been respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV as it's more commonly known, which is one of the major remaining infectious diseases for which there's currently no vaccine or specific treatment for adults. GSK announced that its new drug application for its RSV older adult vaccine candidate was accepted for review by the Japanese Ministry of Health, Labour and Welfare. Now, this candidate has been made for use in adults over 60 to prevent lower respiratory tract disease that can be caused by the RSV virus. And this really is a major move as this is one of the last remaining infectious diseases for which there is currently no vaccine or specific treatment for adults. That's right. And that positive news follows the vaccine's pivotal phase three results shared earlier this month at ID Week 2022, showing it to be highly efficacious in reducing severe RSV in older adults by 94.1% and overall vaccine efficacy of 82.6%. The European Medicines Agency has also since validated the marketing authorization application for GSK's RSV older adult vaccine candidate. And speaking of vaccine developments, there's a new focus on measles and brubella in Senegal in an attempt to boost access to medicines in the region. Through a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Institut Pasteur de Dakar, Batavia Biosciences and Universelles have collaborated to launch a new programme to progress measles and rubella vaccine manufacturing, which is designed to deliver vaccines at high yield and very low cost, therefore increasing affordability and availability. That's right. Production will be transferred to the -the state-of-the-art Madiba facility, a regional manufacturing hub for COVID-19 and other epidemic vaccines, with the capacity to produce 300 million doses for use in Africa. Commenting on the announcement, Dr. Amandu Alfasol, CEO of IPD, said, By manufacturing affordable measles and rubella vaccines and diagnostics in Africa, the region will be one step closer to a diversified manufacturing landscape for epidemic preparedness and improving the supply chain for essential vaccines for routine immunisation. This will help countries in the region build autonomy and reach every child with life-saving vaccines. Absolutely. And additionally, in the news last week was AstraZeneca, which scored a win for its next generation oral selective estrogen receptor degrader, or SERD, 
drugs with a phase two win for camisesterant. The study demonstrated the efficacy of the drug, which met its primary endpoints in improving progression-free survival in patients with hormone-receptive-positive advanced breast cancer, which had previously been treated through endocrine therapy. Breast cancer is the most common cancer worldwide, with an estimated 2.3 million patients having been diagnosed in 2020. Endocrine therapies are widely used for the treatment of HR-positive strands of the disease, but many patients can develop resistance to this. So having these additional options is an amazing step forward, and I think most of us know at least one person affected by breast cancer, so this really is good news for all. So I think this is a gold podcast first, the whole gold team together in the studio and ready to record. Yes, it certainly is. Really great to have Jade joining us to discuss some of our favourite topics and insights from the latest issue. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. And yeah, really good, as you said, to see some of the amazing engagement for gold after publication last week across our social channels, the digital issue and for the individual articles as well. So I'm going to take the plunge and ask a difficult question first. I know for us writers, asking to pick a favourite feature you've written is akin to choosing a favourite child, but I'm going to do it. Um, So Jade, take it away. Um, What took the top spot for you in the 24th issue of Gold? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the top spot for me is quite hard to choose, but I really have to go with my cover feature. And that was following in the footsteps of tech giants. And this was a really interesting one for me to write. I'm quite interested in the tech space in general, but looking at some of the more successful companies and then really correlating what that means for pharma was really quite an interesting deep dive. Yeah, I love this one too. And the visuals to go with it were fantastic as well. Our very talented designer, Emma, did such a good job on that. But in terms of the content, obviously, digital transformation is one of the topics of the moment in pharma. And you mentioned that it's one of your um, particular areas of interest as well. But what was your main inspiration for the feature? So my inspiration for this piece actually came off the back of an FT Live webinar, and that was specifically one of the questions that was submitted to the panel, and they were asking something along the lines of, how will traditional pharma be able to position itself in the field of digital with the entry of new players such as Amazon and Google coming into the market? That really grabbed my attention. I thought, oh, wow, amazing feature idea. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's also really representative of some of the fears that we're seeing circulate the industry at the moment. Um, digital innovation has always been a hot topic, obviously, but with the recent movement into the healthcare space from the likes of Amazon and Google, although the former may not have actually been successful in the end, there's mm. still quite a fair few murmurs in the market along the lines of, oh, how are we supposed to compete with these huge tech companies when it comes to digital if they're moving into our field? Mm. So yeah, this feature, I really wanted to lay out the groundwork for how these tech giants ended up becoming so successful and then talk about some of the techniques that they adopted themselves to move their digital processes above and beyond, leading into how pharma can adopt those techniques themselves to make their patients' lives that much easier. Yeah, that's a a brilliant topic, I think, and, and something that really strikes a chord with a lot of people in pharma I'm sure as we've heard on many occasions pharma has very much been behind the curve in the digital stakes so having these examples set out by the big tech giants um, yeah is something that can definitely be uh, utilized um, so for those who haven't had time to read it yet we will link it in the show notes uh, it's well worth a read um, but for those who haven't um, what would you say were the key takeaways what did you take away from it the most? Hard to pick, but 
One of my key takeaways came in the form of some advice from Jose Maria Guido Avila, who's the Customer Engagement Transformation Lead at Sanofi Genzyme. And he spoke to me a bit about farmers' tendency to start with a solution rather than a problem. Mm-hmm. Someone will come in with the company and they'll generate this amazing new idea of some new tech that can really take their innovation journey above and beyond. Or you'll come across some new software that you want to purchase because it looks really snazzy, but <laughs> <laughs> not really tethering that to a problem. Yeah. And they're starting out with step three in their journey when there's two more that have just been skipped over. Mm-hmm. And he was speaking to me about the example of Amazon and they map out a really clear definition of a user journey from acquisition to conversion and they analyze all the pain points that they're going to experience and then come up with solutions for those specific issues Mm. and what they're doing with that is they're trying to improve each purchase bit by bit so each one is more seamless than the next one making sure they know those pain points inside and out and the customer is actually going to return now a bit hard to relate this to pharma. However, whether pharma does this by partnering with, say, a patient advocacy community to learn the specific issues their patients are experiencing, or maybe entering a patient forum group to ask some open-ended questions and really get people's opinions on their services, that's up to them. But making sure innovators are starting with specific pain points to solve rather than a new solution they really want to angle into the business is really the key to making sure customers are actually benefiting from all the effort it takes to adopt a new process. Yeah, I think um, you mentioned patient centricity there. And I think that's something we've talked about a lot on the podcast recently, isn't it? And I think, um, yeah, that's that's something that can easily be added into um, some of the processes that pharma have. Um, and yes, if you're focusing on what the patient needs and their specific pain points, as you say, then um, you've got that good foundation and you can really build something that's going to make a difference. Otherwise, you're just kind of... Um, a fish out of water in a way, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And you picked up the word foundation there. And that's another thing I'm going to go into oh, now. Well, there we go. <laughs> Some brilliant information from Yigal Aviv, who's the patient and healthcare experience lead at Pfizer. And um, he gave me a quote in there that says, pharma companies must innovate from the ground up, looking inside themselves first at what they can improve. And I thought, oh my God, that's really poignant. Mm. Because if you want to innovate your solutions for customers, you need to make sure you're internally innovative too. Yeah, definitely. Um, As you said before we started this chat, pharma can be viewed as quite an archaic working system with some people claiming projects don't get moved forward because people are really just stuck in their old ways in this sort of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mindset. (laughs) But there's just some really easy wins out there to streamline internal processes like adopting Scrum and AWS. And they really every innovative company should be looking towards that. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Um, So moving on now, um, we always go into feature writing um, with a structure and a narrative in mind. But there's often sort of an unexpected twist in the research or in a quote from a contributor that can really shift that. Um, Would you say that there was anything surprising that came out of the feature, anything that really stood out to you? Not sure whether it's surprising per se, but I had a really good chat with Conrad Dobschutz. And he's currently the National Director at the NHS Innovation Accelerator and Chief Enterprise Officer at UCL Partners. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were discussing whether tech moving into the pharma space presents an opportunity for collaboration or competition. And he felt quite strongly that pharma really has nothing to worry about. (laughs) And he really took the stance that if tech 
genuinely saw benefit in the pharma space, they would already be here, which is fair enough. Mm-hmm. And that opportunity to partner with tech companies really comes in the form of sort of bring your own device clinical trials to optimize patient experience. All comes down to patient centricity. Once again. <laughs> Once again. <laughs> absolutely. Exactly. Because not only does that really save time, but it's also saving money and emissions. Mm. The climate crisis is ever at our front doors. And this easy win could be a great opportunity to reduce a company's impact on the environment. Um, We actually have a feature on this topic and how to make decentralized trials greener. So I'd really recommend checking that out too, as it's a really interesting read. Yeah, it is. That was one from um, our August issue, I think it was. I think so, was it yeah. August? Yes, August issue. And it is, um, yeah, a fascinating uh, insight into, um, yeah, how, how pharma can be more sustainable, especially when it comes to trials. So thank you so much for that uh, really interesting insight, Jade. I really enjoyed uh, your thoughts. So turning to you, Isabel, and your favorite topics from the last issue, I know you had um, some very kind of thought-provoking features uh, in your remit this time, um, including one about farmers' response to Roe versus Wade. I think that might be, spoiler, your favorite one. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? Yes, that's the one I want to have a little chat about today. So I came up with this idea kind of after following the events very closely in June this year of the overturning of Roe v. Wade and obviously was very interested to see how the industry was going to respond to that. Mm. Just to start off with a couple of background statistics. So 36 million women of reproductive age are expected to have had their access to abortion cut off following this ruling. Um, And when something is as significant as that, you would hope companies would leap into action. And some pharma companies certainly did. So we had announcements from Gilead and Sanofi right off the bat saying that they would cover travel and lodging for employees and dependents who wanted to access reproductive health services in other states. We also had Eli Lilly taking a stand. When Indiana went ahead and banned abortion in the state, Eli Lilly is one of the biggest employers here, it's important to note. Mm. They said, given this new law, we will be forced to plan for more employment growth outside of our home state. So sort of taking some real concrete action there, as you can see. But what I want to focus the article on was, although this is all really positive, helping employees, taking a stand with moving business elsewhere, All of this is very tied into surgical abortions, abortions that you have actually in the clinic. But actually, in 2020, 50% of US abortions were medically induced. So this is via pills, pills that are produced by pharma companies. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of how the the angle came about, as I'm sure you can imagine. And the pill I'm talking about, it has quite an interesting backstory. It's called Mifepristone if you haven't heard of it. And it was developed by a French pharmaceutical company in the 1980s, but its journey to the US was pretty protracted and troubled. So the drug was actually deemed effective in 1996 by the FDA, but then a bill amendment was passed in 1998, which prevented the body from actually using taxpayers' money to test, develop, or approve any abortion drug. So it was very suddenly put on the table and taken off the table. Luckily, this was overturned by President Clinton, um, just as the new century dawned, the 2000s. But it's been a contentious issue for a number of years, and now it seems to be under threat once again in the wake of recent events. Um, So how would you say access has been restricted? So within the last few months, Republican legislators have filed more than 100 bills to restrict the availability and distribution of medication abortion drugs. 19 states already have laws in place barring the use of telemedicine to 
order these drugs, which is obviously a huge barrier for people trying to access them. And most recently, Texas has actually prohibited the distribution of abortion pills by mail. So there's a lot going on to stop women being able to access these pills. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've all heard about all this happening. But when you like say those statistics with 19 states um, out of out of 50, it's it's a considerable number and really um, hits home, doesn't it? Mm. So I think from what you've said, um, it's clear that the industry has done some to impact this but um, as ever there's so much more that can be done Um, so I guess my question to you would be what more do you think the industry should be doing to support women's health in this way what's what's the next stage on this journey and what did your research show you so my research showed me that a lot of eyes are pointing on two key companies in particular to do something this is Danko Laboratories and Gen Bio Pro, and it's these two in particular as they are the manufacturers. So Danko Laboratories, they hold the original patent. Gen Bio Pro, they won the right to produce a generic version in 2019. Danko is not saying that much. A spokesperson said they don't have the financial muscle to really take on the anti-abortionists, and they're keeping pretty quiet on this issue publicly. On the other hand, GenBioPro has engaged a federal lobbying firm to advocate on issues relating to this medication abortion issue as it's arising. There's also legislation going down in certain states specifically with this company. But again, there's not a huge amount they can do. A lot of people are looking to them to do something. There's talks of extending label usage so these drugs aren't just prescribed for abortion, that they're also being used in miscarriage as well, perhaps to prevent some of the unfavorable, as the Republicans would say, associations. But there's not a lot they can do in this situation. And I think the whole industry needs to think a little bit about what they can do rather than just looking to these two to get something done about it. Yeah, absolutely. Jade, do you have any... Any thoughts on this? Oh, yeah, it's all quite a bit concerning, isn't it? I think speaking as a room full of women, it's quite horrifying to hear the words unfavourable results coming from the Republican Party. But I know there was some hope on the horizon from your article. Yeah, so I spoke to a couple of people for this. and One of them was Samantha Miller, who is the co-founder and co-CEO of Cadence Health. Um, And she notes that she has a lot of faith in the industry. She believes that they have the expertise and perspectives to contribute to the conversation around this. And she believes a real open discussion among all the healthcare stakeholders is needed to kind of come up with a solution to this. In the meantime, though, I'd say contraception, contraception, contraception. This is one thing the industry can control, improving access and the usability of existing solutions. So two things or two instances I bring up in the article is HRA Pharma. You may have heard about this. They are seeking uh, OTC um, approval for their contraceptive O-pill in the US. And obviously that will remove a number of barriers. Uh, Frederic Welgren, the Chief Strategic Operations and Innovation Officer at HRA, said this will undoubtedly help to remove unnecessary barriers. And I couldn't agree more. There's other stories coming out from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They're supporting the development of an implant that could be worn for longer, which means women will have to access clinics less often. So there's a lot going on and there's a lot that companies in this space could be doing but yeah I think it's just a case of everyone pulling together and doing what they can. Yeah what a really poignant note to end on and improving that access and removing those barriers like you were talking about is definitely the right step forward. Um, I feel like it's necessary to say that Helena you shouldn't get away with not being asked difficult questions on your podcast (laughs) so I turn the topic to you. What was your favourite topic to come up in this issue? 
That was me thinking I was going to get away with it. Um, but a very good question. Um, I thought this was such a brilliant issue with some really thought-provoking angles and topics. But up there, I think, was our feature on biotechs. So earlier this year, we ran a feature called A Big Boom in Biotech. Uh, our readers uh, may remember it covered the transformation of biotechs from risky to solid investment targets as a result of the pandemic. Um, but as we saw towards the end of last year and over the course of this year, there have been multiple factors that have caused investors to pull on the brakes. Um, and this is what our feature is the biotech boom on thin ice uh, really digs into. One of our contributors, biotech investor Danny Back, commented that the situation in the public markets over the COVID-19 years 2020 and 2021 was untenable, artificially boosted and did not correlate with the real economy. So obviously the bubble had to deflate. Um, and I guess that makes complete sense it's perhaps an unsurprising development there yeah potentially and this feature also went alongside our infographic of course which documented the slump in investment but also suggested that this was temporary um, yes, absolutely. And um, in our biotech's feature, Claire Skentelbury, Director General of Europa Bio, who is a previous guest on the podcast, commented that large companies have an increasing need to get novel treatments into the pipeline. So we're still seeing a strong early stage and startup funding. Um, and plus, there is now an increased activity from private investors, she said, as well as increased money from the European Investment Bank and European Innovation Council. Um, she also pointed out that there's huge appetite for disruptive technology in biotech. So investment is likely to continue positively for a little while yet, um, especially in areas such as cell and gene therapies, which we hear so much about, um, precision medicine, likewise, um, and the increasing role of AI and machine learning in drug development. I had a call with a, a pharma company earlier this week um, and AI and machine learning um, was something that they um, said that they were really, really focusing on. Yeah, you're right. So much potential there. And it was actually really lovely to hear from Claire again for the feature. She's a longtime friend of gold and has appeared on the podcast and in a couple of our features before. We'll link to some of those in the show notes. We always like it when people come back to speak to us again. Well, thank you, ladies. Uh, a brilliant roundup of Gold's latest content, I think. I really enjoyed that. I hope everyone listening did too. Do remember to check out the issue at www.emg-gold.com and we'll link all the content we referred to in the show notes below. We will indeed. So thank you so much for joining us, Jade. It's been a really interesting discussion and great to hear even more insights from this issue of gold. Um, for our listeners, you can keep up to date with this and everything else gold has to offer by subscribing for free. As Isabel mentioned, our website is emg-gold.com. And if you add a forward slash subscribe, you can uh, sign up there. Um, you'll receive our publications straight into your inbox, along with our weekly editor's pick newsletter, hand-selected by me, um, as well as our latest gold podcast. So much is just a click away. So do make sure you check that out. But I'm afraid that's it from us. We do hope you enjoyed the episode. Subscribe if you haven't already and make sure you tune in to our future episodes. Um, so yes, Normal Service will resume next week with another brilliant interview. But for now, take care and it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye. Bye.